you are listening to Single Serves. My name is Arno Marturet and I am your host. Single Serves is a podcast dealing with design, architecture, business, and city building in which I interview an expert on a specific subject matter. Together, we dive into that topic and challenge conventional thinking in a thought-provoking conversation. For our inaugural season, we have some great guests lined up and you can expect to hear about such topics like social media for architects, organizational culture, criticism in media, and architects not practicing architecture, among many others. I sincerely hope that you will find these conversations as engaging as I did and learn a thing or two in the process. Don't forget to send us your comments, criticism, and praise. To do so, you can email us at hello at rvltr.studio or leave a comment online. You can also subscribe to the podcast on our website at rvltr.studio and follow us on social media under the handle at revelator underscore T-O. It's R-E-V-E-L-A-T-E-U-R underscore T-O. Hey, Arno here. I recorded this interview back in the spring of 2020. So the kids today would call this prehistoric. But its overall theme is as relevant as ever, hence my desire to publish it. With that disclaimer out of the way, let's get back to regular programming. So today on the podcast, our guest is Alan Jones. Alan Jones is a registered architect, principal of Alan Jones Architects, a professor of architecture at Queen's University, Belfast, and the current president of the Royal Institute of British Architects. Uh, thanks, Alan, for being on, on the show. It's a real pleasure to have you. Thanks for inviting me. So um, you and I are going to talk about the uh, past and the future of architecture today. And uh, the context in, in which we've met uh, initially was that you attended the uh, REIC Festival uh, in Toronto a few months ago. And you made, uh, during a variety of interventions you had throughout the festival, some really good points about uh, the challenges that architecture is going through currently. And I think some of those challenges apply to a lot of different architecture markets, uh, whether it's uh, the UK, Canada, the US or elsewhere. So can you start with telling us what do you think is the problem with architecture? Um, well, interestingly, the first thing I have a problem with is the term architecture <laughs> in that um, I'm a firm believer in um, the role that architects have um, so I, I much prefer to use the term architects. What's, might, one might argue then, what's the, um, what's the problem with architects might be the question then that I would like to answer. Um, and um, I think part of the reason why I prefer to focus on architects rather than architecture is I think traditionally people think what architects do is create architecture. But in fact, um, uh, the outcome of involving an architect may not be a building it may not be a piece of architecture the answer might be to do something different you know so um to me uh the assumption that it is a building um or especially now in the times of climate emergency that it is um, a new building is not um is not a foregone conclusion so that, that that's a, i think a starting point um uh so to me the, the question of what's the problem with architects uh would be um uh, yeah, a perception of what we do, 
you know, the, uh, that uh, very often I think we've been thought of as doing drawings and providing a service to create new buildings. But in fact, what I'm ar arguing for is that we should be very much more at the front end of uh, what I refer to as ideas and strategy. Um, interestingly, uh, you know, I think it was um, Fred Olson when he was talking about a very early career Norman Foster um, he said about Norman Foster, he said that he asks the right questions, you know, and, and it's that really early stages. Um, uh, Pierre Vassenaar is an architect here in the UK uh, with an MBA, and he talks about um, lingering longer at the beginning of a project before we decide to go off in a, in a particular direction. So it's that um, uh, early, early stages. And, and how do we, um, for example, address that strategic um, role of architects when we still do competitions and one might argue give our uh, what is most valuable away um, for for free as, as we as we pursue new, new commissions um, there's there's lots of you know people ask me for example when I'm president what, what are you going to do and because most presidents only focus on one or two things and I think my my problem as, as a president of the Royal Institute of British Architects is um, there are so many fronts, so many, um, so it's a broad front, you know, that one would argue in terms of education, how we equip our, our future architects with the skills to really step up to issues around climate emergency and public safety. Uh, how do we upskill a, a current profession that has been uh, here in the UK, uh, it has been put into a, a, a corner, if you like, and sort of put under the stairs in, in a lot of contracts. Uh, and uh, you hear stories of architects not being allowed to come to site. Uh, and, um, and if you like, uh, undertake the, the role, the traditional role that we've always thought that architects did, which was to be the champions for quality and, and on delivery of, of, of ideas and, and strategies. So um, it's a huge area, you know, area for me in terms of you know, problems, potential solutions, opportunities. I could, I could talk for a long time. Yeah, I'm sure. Um, but so what I'm hearing, and you can tell me if I understand that correctly, is that architecture and architects would benefit from taking a more uh, strategic and holistic approach to design, much like you would see in the fields uh, of um, design thinking, especially applied to uh, to businesses. And, and there's been some pretty incredible examples out there in the last 20 years. Is that a fair comparison? Um, it's, in, it, it's, it's an interesting comparison. You know, when I go to visit practices, um, I, I often ask, how many different ways do you design? And sometimes I get sort of puzzled faces or, 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 or puzzled sort of um, uh, expressions. And I explain, uh, which is sort of in line with your, your comment, that uh, design to me is, I don't play golf, but you think of it almost like a sort of set of golf clubs that you need to work out what way do you design at a particular stage to get the most and, and to reveal the um, potential ways forward. And um, I remember putting up one, one image of, uh, that showed 33 different ways of designing. And somebody said, oh no, actually Alan, there are a hundred different ways of designing. And it is, it's that um, uh, design as process. You know, there's a fantastic um, past president of the RIBA, um, Frank Duffy, mm -hmm. who wrote a whole series of essays on uh, knowledge and acquiring knowledge and expertise and, and how that sort of manifests itself uh, as an architect. And we could have learned a lot from, uh, you know, taking his advice way back uh, when, when he was president in the sort of um, uh, late 80s. And um, so, yes, it, it's becoming interested again in the process of design. Um, the, the practices that I, I worked with um, in my formative years as a sort of early um, career practitioner, I worked with uh, Michael Hopkins and partners. Um, Michael Hopkins was one of the 
um, early partners with Norman Foster and then with David Morley, who was again um, uh, one of the par uh, a partner at Foster's. And it was very much about talking about the process of how, how to design and actually explaining the design process to clients really got everybody's head nodding, as I would say, on the other side of the table. Everybody sort of understood the sort of the, the logic or the evidence and so on. But I'm, I'm beginning to understand or appreciate that sometimes design just isn't about logic. You know, it's um, sometimes it's actually turning logic on its head that finds the right answers. So it's, but it is, it's very much at the front end, you know, of, of the process. But following it all the way right through from early stages, and this is the challenge for architects, and I think a lot of it is not to do with architects themselves, but the circumstances we find ourselves in through government procurement systems and so on, where uh, those ideas um, are separated from the original author. Um, or, uh, and I mean that as a practice, not just as an individual. Mm -hmm. And how that is then transferred through uh, the procurement process through to um, development and actually delivery. And how Phil Bernstein from Yale talks about how 80 to 90, 80% to be exact. He said 80% of projects don't deliver on the promise. And I think a lot of that is actually to do with the systems that we find ourselves in or frameworks of being able to follow those ideas through to reality. So it's that sort of what's I think referred to as building performance management, how we keep those ideas. Um, uh, and obviously they have to evolve, but how, how do you... Um, develop and allow ideas to mature and, and obviously slightly alter as, as a project goes forward, I think is the real challenge. And it's architects working with obviously engineers and, and, and specialist uh, consultants and contractors, but it seems to be very often um, disrupted through uh, procurement systems that are focusing on a small set of parameters in terms of success, namely time and money and not the longer term and, and the overall performance. Yeah, and we've spoken extensively about procurement on this podcast and other uh, other avenues as well. So I'm not going to get into it, but I, I it, it's clear that there's a whole host of issues related to that in Canada, and I'm sure you have similar issues in the UK as well. Um, so you've you've spoken before about the need for architecture to reposition itself, and what do you mean by that? Well, it's interesting. An illustration of this would be um, the, the RIBA is going through a, a branding, rebranding process at the minute. Mm -hmm. And as I say to people, don't think font and color of, of you know of, of typeface or anything like that. It's actually um, repositioning. I think the problem we have as architects and what we do, and, and one would argue, and about architecture itself, it's seen as a priv for the privileged few. And how do we actually reposition? Um, architecture and architects in particular that what we do is seen as essential um, it, you know, in most countries you'll find that what we do as architects sits across a whole series of different government departments mm -hmm. uh, to do with business innovation design culture well-being and health and so on and on one hand that's actually an advantage but on the other hand it's actually a disadvantage and it's hard to keep a, to have a focus um, so what, what I've been suggesting here at the RIBA is, so when we reposition, if we imagine we were to create a poster, I'm not saying that we do a poster campaign, but if it was a poster and you have a piece of um, late 60s, early 70s um, brutalist architecture, like say one of Erno Goldfinger's um, tar uh, block buildings, uh, Trellick Tower, for example, or Balfron Tower, two famous projects here in London, mm -hmm. that you look at them and, and yes, somebody might say, oh, there's brutalist architecture. You go, yes, but it is also a manifestation of technology, 
attitudes towards environment uh, and uh, energy, also social policy, uh, planning, and so on, that you actually start to realize that actually architecture folds in a whole series of, of issues together. And, and it's bringing that home. I, I, I agree, there a comment a number of years ago, it's not about educating the client or educating the public. I think those are terrible terms. But to think of it as actually, we've got a lot to do to explain our worth. And then that, that's the point I'm making, that it's not, um, and that's how I've been brought up um, in practice as well at Hopkins. It's, it's not about you know, the, the, the receiver receiving the message wrong. It's actually what is the message is the thing that we have to be um, uh, very, very, very clear on. So um, I was pleased. I'm sure you heard me talk in, um, in Toronto um, about the Sterling Prize, mm -hmm. about the um, Goldsmith Street winning the Sterling Prize. And there you have, instead of... Uh, that's for your listeners to explain. That's the top architecture architecture award in the UK, and that's you know if you imagine local regional awards, then going forward to national awards. Out of those national awards, we pick uh, six or seven um, shortlisted schemes for the Sterling Prize, and then the Sterling Prize is from that final shortlist. And, and to be clear, the Sterling Prize is for a building, correct? Yes. Yeah. Yeah, it has to be for 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 a, an award winning um, of that particular year. Mm -hmm. And this year, in two thousand and nineteen. That went to a 100% social housing, passive house, you know, low energy um, project um, that was traditional contract delivered by architects that were involved from the start to the finish under a traditional procurement contract as well for a local authority. And to me, in terms of repositioning, that is a fantastic message in terms of actually saying, here we have high quality design delivered at a low budget, um, you know, and where the energy bills, for example, are, and your money would be, what, $200 a year? Which, you know, we, we have a more moderate or more temperate climate than, you, uh, than, than listeners in Canada, for example, would have. But So you're saying the energy bill would be 200 bucks a year? Yes. Yeah, that's what the typical energy bill is here a month. <laughs> so... So, so what it is, and, and also because of the pacifies, which is a German technical standard, um, also f filters the air that you've got much reduced um, uh, asthma, you've got higher attendances at school, you've got less absenteeism from work, and, and so on. So that that's so that there's spin-offs in terms of the, our national health service costs and so on as well. So that's in terms of repositioning. I think it's that's a perfect example of how what architects do and the impact that they can have in terms of safe places for children to play, how the winter sun um, isn't blocked out by the, the, the housing block in front of you, that the, the roof has been designed to allow the sun to come into your living room and your kitchen in the wintertime. All of those sorts of you know, the um, benefits of architecture and, and what architects do, I think is um, key to that repositioning. You know, I think us just to um, stand and, and say, oh, we, we deserve to be understood and we deserve to be appreciated. I think we have to, if you like, be on the front foot and actually sort of explain a lot more what, our, um, what, what benefits we bring. So, you know, for example, there just last week at the Houses of Parliament uh, here in the UK, there were the, the, the RIBA and the climate challenge that we've put forward um, to all our chartered practices was being mentioned as leadership by the architects in the industry to address climate emergency. And again, that's part of the repositioning is actually taking the lead instead of being pushed around. Um, it's actually sort of... Um, how to say, being a bit more proactive. I'm not saying that we don't, we haven't in the past, but it's actually just being uh, very, very determined and seizing opportunities. And it's terrible to think of climate emergency as an opportunity, but when you see a door opening, take it, 
and actually make sure that we um, we play our take our lead um, and uh, upskill. We, we we sort of are, are writing a brief at the minute for our schools of architecture to actually again um, really change how we do things. Um, I'm referring to it as the new emphasis that we have to really um, sort of um, demonstrate our worth and be prepared to actually deliver on it as well. Mm-hmm. So that's very interesting uh, position on positioning <laughs> um, <laughs> to be a little bit oxymoronic. But um, I, I want to touch on one point that you made early on when you mm. answered that, that question. Uh, you said that architecture has been by and large a, uh, a service for the elites. And I had, a, I had the pleasure to talk to one of your colleagues, um, Andrew Wall from Wall Thistleton a, a couple months ago because he was in Toronto for a talk and I did an interview with him. And um, he compared the current traditional practice of architecture to um, someone building a very high-end custom car in their garage where every part is made by hand and fitted perfectly. Um, so, so very high level of craft. But there's an opportunity for architecture, he, he seems to think, and I tend to agree with him, um, to take on more the model of um, mass manufacturing of automobiles and having the ability to make very customized products, um, but still sold at a very reasonable price. And there was one statistic that he mentioned to me that I thought was very interesting, is that apparently on average, Nissan makes um, the same car one a, every, once every seven years. So by that, I mean... Um, for a given model to have the exact same car with all the exact same specs and color and leather on the seats and whatever, it comes out about once every seven years, which means that if seven years is the average um, lifespan of a model, you might have two or three exact same vehicles in the lifetime of a given model and still give the ability to customize, um, to pe- for people to customize their, their vehicles. So I understand it's not a, a 100% um, applicable metaphor, but I think it's a very interesting thing, way to think about how architecture could be practiced. And, uh, and Wa Thistleton is actually a very interesting practice because they try to do as much prefabrication, especially with CLT type of structures as they can. And so moving more to the, in the direction of um, uh, mass customization for lack of a better term, what's your take on that? There's two ways, I think, about this. One is to look at uh, the practice, um, the Dutch practice, um, Klaus and Kahn. Um, they were writing um, over 15 years ago about um, using standard products. So what one thing is actually st- um, just using, instead of trying to make everything bespoke, that you use standard materials. And the way I think of that is um, that, that architecture resides in a DIY store. So one is to sort of customize and make something really specific, but make it, um, um, how to say, consumer um, choosable, if you know what I mean. But the other is to think of actually what are the materials that are being used. And if it's something that's really um, simple, low and very, very low tech, that's one way of making it very accessible um, using every, very everyday, project, um, um, everyday products. And, and then obviously um, Rural Studio, for example, is an example of where you can use almost like things that you find in, I wouldn't say dumps, but recycle centers and so on, and, and you know DIY stores. So you go low tech, so that the making it accessible isn't using the finest stone from Italy or the special glass from Japan or whatever. It's finding different ways of 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 using very very simple products. That, but and then the other way is is obviously the um, what your the, the the car you know industry analogy. Um, and you know, there is a big push here in the UK on um, off-site uh, digital fabrication and so on so it's 
Um, I can see both working. You know, so the um, low low tech, cheap materials, and it's how those materials are combined together. So um, that's one method, and the other method is to give choice. Uh, and yeah, bo both can work. Um, but that, yeah, that that's my response. You know, the um, um, so going back to the the idea of positioning for architects, um, and you've spoken a little bit about that, but is there anything you can point out in, in the way of what would need to change in the industry for that that the the profession really to to um, connect or be in tune with what's happening in the 21st century? Right. What what I would think on that is that um, I think we have to consider how we define success. I think the um, if the, that would be part of the repositioning, mm -hmm. how how we um, how we as architects define success and how uh, our clients and how society would define success, I think needs to be, um, I wouldn't say reconsidered, but let's just say considered further. Um, mm -hmm. There's, um, uh, my wife's a dentist, and um, if, you, if you imagine becoming, um, there was a movement here to uh, make dentists more um, client-focused, you know, um, and, if you imagine you know, that our, our, the, there's that phrase, uh, architecture for architects, and uh, it was in um, Rory Hyde's book on future practice, it referred to architects retreating to the drawing board you mm -hmm. know, and, and almost becoming internalized uh, you know, and, and, and patting each other on the back. And I know peer review is part of, of, a, of a profession, but it, it's reorientating how we define success, I think, is one of the key points to make. So, um, so in, your, in your view, how would you define that? What would be the, the kind of main, uh, main criteria for defining success in architecture from your perspective? The recipient of the Royal Gold Medal for 2020. If we look at them, and that's Grafton Architects, and that was actually a practice that was awarded the medal, not an individual or a pair of individuals. And I think that's where, if you like, redefining success starts is that we realize that it's a team effort. You know, the, um, uh, one of my pieces for the Royal Institute RIBA journal was um, looking at this, and I refer to it as a team of individuals. And I think that's where we realize is that, uh, that it's very, I think it's becoming increasingly difficult to be the, the, the master of everything or, you know, the, uh, in terms of knowing about everything. And we realize, and that's the point that Grafton Architects were making, is that we will receive this medal but as a practice, because actually it takes a whole series of different people, those who are winning the competitions and good at the front end, those who are good at actually at the development, those who are good at the actual delivery and so on, and together that they create um, architecture. So um, I wondered if the, the fact that the gold medal went to a practice, and I think it's only gone to a practice since 1834, I think it's only gone to a practice maybe two or three times at, at best. And I think that's part of it. Instead of... Uh, uh, education, for example, really pushing, you know, the, the sort of star architect idea, you know, and, and, and that starts to make people think, well, if, as architects, if we're not that person um, and having that sort of level of performance, that somehow we failed. No, that we play to our, you know, that we are the product of our upbringing in terms of our experiences, in terms of, you know, what we did in the summers, what we, you know, what schools we went to, um, and, and uh, the environment that we, we were brought up in. And, and so we were these individuals, but we come together to actually create architecture so, and, and provide a service. And I think that's where I would say it starts, is that redefining of um, 
that uh, we have to work together on this. Yeah, that makes a, a whole lot of sense. So what are um, some opportunities you see for the, the architecture profession or architecture profession to, uh, to tackle first, maybe uh, two or three um, priority items um, and still in the, from the idea of, of repositioning the, the profession? What would, you, what would you see needs to change first? What would you say needs to change first? Mm. Well, interestingly, that um, I think generally uh, people think that the professions are dying. Um, and uh, there was um, Tom Nichols' book, uh, which uh, The Death of Expertise, was quite gloomy. And, but it's only in the, in the final chapter that he actually suggests that the, the way to redeem a profession, unfortunately, is through, any, uh, through disasters. And to me, the disasters that are really sort of uh, requiring the profession to change are the twin disasters uh, of climate emergency. And the other one for us here in the UK is Grenfell, the, the fire where over 70 people were killed and obviously a lot more were injured. Uh, that, that was a high rise block. And that had only been refurbished two years previously. So, you know, the public inquiry is on at the minute and the architects are on the stand and, you know, there's all that's been live streamed and so on. But what it really brings home um, is uh, those are the two immediate disasters that we have to respond to. But there's also others on the horizon. So it's sort of um, uh, on climate emergency, I think is the first thing, is uh, making a commitment in terms of how we will operate. We've done that here in the UK through something called the um, um, Climate Challenge 2030. There's also how we change what we expect people to know in terms of our uh, members, in terms of um, CPD uh, and continuing professional development. Um, that, that's, that's important, but obviously we have to then put pressure on, on government to actually allow us to, to deliver on that. So there's that. Um, so we have to also lead by example. So there, there's, um, we've introduced, for example, uh, a new CPD recording platform. Uh, and it will be a... Um, a gradual change over a number of years. Um, I don't know in Canada, for example, if you get um, thrown off the architect's register for not doing your CPD. Um, but uh, again, I mentioned my, my wife, the dentist. You're not a dentist in the UK if you don't do your CPD. And so th there's a journey for our profession, I believe, in um, becoming much more rigorous in terms of what we know, how we prove what we know, um, how we develop, how we respond to uh, the, the issues of the day, and how we upskill for those issues. So there's that, um, I think would be one of the really, uh, and again, for fire, you know, the, uh, how we uh, ensure that uh, our architects are up to steam with the current regulations and the thinking about how those regulations might evolve in the near future. Uh, yeah, and when you say CPD, you're talking about continuing education, right? That's right. Yeah, yes, yes, yes. So it's called Con Ed here. I believe that you've been traveling quite extensively to other jurisdictions, uh, and I'm, I'm going to take a wild guess and say that part of it is to kind of see how things are done elsewhere. Um, what have you seen uh, in those other markets that uh, works well and you think is very promising? Well, interestingly, um, with the virus um, uh, uh, pandemic or risk of pandemic, uh, my travel has stopped. I was meant to be in the Far East for the last two weeks. That stopped. I'm meant to be at MIBIM um, next week for um, the South of France for the, the big uh, property conference. That, that's been cancelled. So um, my travels have been really just in, within the UK um, and, and not um, uh, elsewhere uh, as, as much as I would like. So Canada was great, but um, 
Um, I haven't been recently. I haven't been elsewhere. It's really just been within the UK and Scotland and Ireland. And so, can you speak to some other um, some things you've seen or heard about from other places that uh, you think are good examples of what the future of the profession could be? Here's a blatant plug for a book. <laughs> um, what, what I would actually um, recommend, and I'm sure you can, uh, if you're in a university, it probably is a dig- there's a digital copy of Defining Contemporary Professionalism, which was a book that I co-authored or co-edited um, there and it came out at the beginning of September. Mm-hmm. And really that is looking at, because your question highlights or, or makes me think there's multiple facets to what, what are good, what's good ways of doing things, good examples. And what uh, Rob Hyde and myself did was we pulled together 63 different contributions and got them to write a thousand words each with a, f- uh, a few uh, up to six uh, further bits of reading. And what that was to do was to sort of help uh, everyone sort of see what, what potential directions there are on, a, on education, on, on, on becoming a professional, uh, running a business, how that impacts and starts to connect with regulation, but then also in terms of construction and issues around AI. You know, so I immediately, you know, think of, you know, people who are on the, on the inside cover, on the end papers. There's a, a diagram with uh, four circles of those topics I talked about, and then it's like a map. And I immediately think of, say, for example, uh, rural design in the west coast of Scotland, which is probably, you know, would be equivalent to a rural practice in, um, in Canada, and uh, how they have three income streams, how they just decided we've, we're fed up with big practice in big cities, and we're going to go and make it work in, um, and deliver, and they deliver kits, you know, and, and different um, sort of forms of customization and standardization but also they have um, other revenue streams as well. And that's an example of being very, very local and very, very aware of how to sort of fit into the economy uh, and, and the climate, I would argue as well, of, of a particular region. So it's, there's l- lots of different examples. I think that another example of that diagram would be uh, Bryden Wood, who are a practice slap bang right in the middle of London, uh, started by two partners, uh, two, two architects from, um, uh, Grimshaws, mm-hmm. who are uh, the, the two, you know, Mr. Bryden and Mr. Wood, and that is, um, uh, uh, there are a lot of people looking at that practice in terms of um, their combination of architecture, but all the other sort of facets of uh, thinking about property, investment, fabrication, construction, off-site, digital, analog, uh, people versus business, et cetera, et cetera. You know, they're uh, one of the sort of um, Slightly below the radar, but there are a lot of people looking at them at the minute as potential uh, way, uh, ways forward. So I think that's pretty much it for the questions I had. Is there anything uh, you'd like to add in terms of what your thinking is regarding the future of architecture, the profession, the way it's practiced, and, and maybe potential uh, new avenues that are not have been overlooked? To me, looking at what architects do, I think we have to remember, for example, in the UK, that two-thirds of architects are in mainstream practice. But that means that one-third are elsewhere, uh, be that in uh, operating as a journalist and a critic, be that um, working within a contractor as, as design managers or developers as either you know, the, the, the lead and owning a development company. It could be teaching, researching. It could be working within a planning department of a city um, corporation. It could be working for a third part, um, third sector charity, you know, on disaster relief. Mm-hmm. I think what it is is actually, I think all architects are really trying to find the best place to have the most positive impact. And to me, 
architects exist not just in private practice or in mainstream practice, but everywhere. You know, and it's remembering all all of them and how to support them, how to inspire them, um, and uh, because it, it became clear there recently here in the RIBA, you know, when there was a somebody was preparing a speech and suggesting somebody who was actually operating more on the sort of critic side would, was a lapsed architect. I go, no, 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 they're all, everyone's an architect. And, and, and it might be teaching and, and really inspiring the future architects is the place to have the most impact, whether it's actually writing and, and critiquing um, uh, the work of architects and the industry and suggesting how that could evolve could be the best way to have impact. So to me, it's celebrating all the different ways of um, being an architect and having the most positive impact, I think is really important and to celebrate, but also to communicate to um, architects that we, we evolve and we change uh, through our, um, um, our career. You know, the, you know the, where you start and where you end up might be two different things. Um, and I think it's important, you know, the, I, I wouldn't like to finish without saying that you know, podcasts, for example, and, and YouTube and so on are an important new aspect of, of, of knowing and learning about what it is to be an architect and how to have that impact. So um, I'm pleased to have had the invite. I think it's uh, important. I think uh, uh, podcasts are a fantastic way of, uh, of whether you're commuting, whether you're in the garden, whether you're um, uh, doing something else or, or even when you're working to sort of um, to be continually learning, to continually thinking of how to be better tomorrow. And that's where what you do and others do is really, really important. Well, I'm glad uh, that resonates with you. And uh, I, I often think of what I do as like, yeah, I'm a lab stack architect of sorts. Uh, and I'm technically not even allowed to call myself an architect because I'm not registered or licensed, as they say here. But I think, uh, like you rightly pointed out, all those um, uh, professions on the sideline that, that are re related to architecture, but not a practice of architecture in in the traditional sense of the term, our equality is important. And I believe as much as you do that positioning, uh, whether we're talking about an industry or a business is critically important to get your customers, uh, whoever that might be, to understand what you do and relate to it, uh, to, to create buy-in on their part is critically important. And, and what I do as part of that is to help people understand better what architects do, help architects understand better what their clients aspire to and all those things. And I think those are um, just as important as the design, but my my peeve with the whole profession, and I've seen this in pretty much every country I've had the chance to practice or study in, is that architecture is a very insular profession. Uh, the education of architects is very limited in scope. It trains incredible designers and thinkers, but it fails to, from what I've seen, train people on many other aspects of the profession and especially in the business side of things. Um, so I think there's a lot of work to be done there. And there's um, one of my favorite things to do is to look at what other industries are doing and where they're succeeding as a model that could possibly be applied to the architecture profession because there's a lot to learn. One of my favorite industries to look at is um, advertising uh, as much as uh, there's a lot of bad coming out of it. There's also some very important lessons to learn from good advertising, um, especially as, uh, as it regards uh, how we sell our thinking as, as creative people. I agree. I have. Um, I'm looking at what I have on my desk at the minute here. I'm sitting in my de uh, office in London, and um, I have Rory Sutherland's book, Alchemy: The Surprising Power of Ideas That Don't Make Sense, and that's uh, he's um, the vice chair of um, an advertising company. So, um, 
I'm, I'm, I'm with you on that. Um, it's um, very, very important to look at other, you know, the, I have actually not that many books on architecture on my desk. Most of them are um, about AI or about um, ideas and so on. So um, I'm, I'm with you. Well, I'm glad to hear. So it was a, a great pleasure to have you on the interview. And again, I want to thank you a lot for uh, taking the time to take part in this. Um, let's spread the word and make sure that uh, all those ideas are, are heard far and wide. Yes, indeed. Thank you very much. Goodbye. Hey, Arno here. I hope you've enjoyed this episode and that you'll come back for more. Please share with your friends and colleagues and remember to subscribe on our website at rvltr.studio. Follow us on social media at revelator underscore T-O. It's R-E-V-E-L-A-T-E-U-R underscore T-O. Until next time, ciao.